I was a little nervous about my title this morning. I wasn't, I wasn't just sure that I should really do that. I, I know it could be misunderstood. It could seem like I'm, I'm making light, I'm playing games, and we're not doing that at all. But I wanted, I wanted to provoke our thinking a little bit. I did want to get our attention. And so my title, Who Does Jesus Think He Is? Sometimes God calls you to do something. God calls you to, to respond to him in a way that it seems too much. Now, if the request, if the, if the challenge, if the admonition comes through a person, one of your friends, someone at church, maybe you can eat more easily argue with them and dismiss it. So I look at things on my phone that I shouldn't. But get rid of my smartphone? Who do they think they are? Yeah, I spend a lot of time gaming, but sell my gaming rig and use the time and money for my family or for others instead? Who do they think they are? But when the conviction comes more directly from the Holy Spirit, when in your own time you got a little careless and you were, you were reading and reflecting on God's Word, you know that's dangerous. That will challenge and change you. So you were reading, and there it was. The Spirit clearly is telling you to give up an idol that you have been holding on to for your own pleasure, trying to find your own fulfillment. Or he, or he tells you to, to trust Him in something that seems too much to ask, and your heart rebels, and you say, Well, not out loud. But inside, inside you say, who does Jesus think he is expecting that of me? But the question is not, who does Jesus think he is? I invite you to get your pen or your pencil out right now. Let's change that title, okay? I invite you to change it. It's not a matter of who does Jesus think, it, think he is. It's, it is rather a matter of who Jesus is is. So go ahead and take out the extra words. That's fine. Who Jesus is. You see, the purpose of the written Word of God is to show us the living Word of God, Jesus, so that we can fully know God in Jesus by the Spirit illuminating our minds and our hearts. We are to know who Jesus is. Our whole relationship with God is going to suffer, is going to be stunted if we do not know, have a grasp of, and even begin to walk with an experience of who Jesus is. Paul's writing here to faithful Christian believers in Colossae. He's praying for them to know God's will in order that they could walk worthy of the Lord. A new life bearing fruit in Christ-likeness by the empowering of God's Holy Spirit. A life lived in worshipful thanksgiving for all God has done with them. That was last week. That is living worthy. Bearing fruit, empowered by the Spirit, in worshipful thanksgiving for what God has done. That is living worthily or responsively in harmony, appropriately to 
who Jesus is and what he has done. Our devotion to Christ, how we yield to him, how we trust him and his empowering is going to be directly related to who I think Jesus is. It's as John Piper said, the most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about God. Who is Jesus, really? So, we tell the story about Elisha. The Lord opened his eyes. Open his eyes, let him see. Open his eyes, let him see a spiritual reality that is beyond his, his physical and natural comprehension. That's what we're talking about. Open our eyes that he may see greater are those with us than those who are against us. This passage in Colossae, in Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, this is our Elisha in Dothan moment. This is the time when we ask, when we pray, Lord, open our eyes. Lord, open our eyes to your word that we may know indeed that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Open our eyes to truly see our Lord Jesus. That if we are to walk worthy of, if we're to walk according to Jesus, Lord, show us more clearly this morning. Help us to see who Jesus is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage tells us who Jesus is. Now, before we read the passage, I want us to stand as we read God's Word, but I, I, I was chastened last week for not reviewing our memory verse. Now, our memory verse is not the one that's on the, on the bottom of your notes today. That would be cheating. You have a new one. But the one that was on there the last three weeks. Go ahead and stand up. Stand up. I interrupted your standing. Sorry. So before we read, we're going to recite that memory verse as best we can. Try to cheat as little as, as you can. You know, you and I will both glance down once or twice, probably, right? Like, how does it start? It was verse 19 and 20, just to get us going again. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile all things to himself. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross. Now let me read from verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is, go ahead and take your seats. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of God, verse 15. That, that reminds us of John chapter 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we jump to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Greek word is tabernacled. He housed down. He pitched his tent with ours. There's an Old Testament wilderness tabernacle imagery there. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, who is eyeball to eyeball with the Father, he has declared him, has made him known, has shown him to us. Jesus is the expression of and revelation of God himself. Remember John 14, the discussion with Thomas? Jesus is telling his disciples he's going away, and where he goes they can't yet come. And, but the, where he's going, they know the place, he, the, the, the way to get there, they know. And Thomas pipes up, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And so Jesus in John 14, 6 says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Oh, Thomas says, show us the Father. That would be enough for us. And Jesus replies to him, oh, Thomas, 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 Thomas. Have you been with me this long? And you do not know? The one who has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. Jesus is God come into humanity, into flesh, to be with us so that we can, in knowing him, know God. He is the living word of God, the very expression of God himself. Jesus is the image of God, and combined in Jesus is this, is this double aspect of Jesus is the fullness of God in humanity, the image of God, and yet he is also as fully and truly human. He is the perfect image bearer, better even than Adam. And so we are also then being changed, transformed into his likeness, into the same image. Jesus is God in humanity. Jesus is the very, he's not just a, a shadow of God. He's not just a, a depiction of God. Jesus is not a caricature of God. We have those ourselves, but Jesus is not that. Jesus says in verse 20, is the fullness of God manifest in humanity. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's a strong statement. That is fullness in totality, emph emphatically so, bolded, underlined by all the fullness. Fullness itself means that as a word, but Paul goes on, all the fullness. There's nothing of God left out of Jesus. That's another way to think about it. There's nothing of God left out of Jesus. Just as it pleased God to dwell on Mount Zion with his people, so it pleased God to inhabit humanity in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. The Word became flesh and pitched his tent with ours. So Colossians 2 and verse 9. Paul's going to pick this up again later. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
Jesus is nothing less than God himself. It seems to be important to Paul. He's going to circle back and bring it up again. He opens and closes this high water point, this hymn section of chapter 1. He opens and closes on that statement that, that he is the image of God, he is the very fullness of God. Jesus is God made visible in humanity. The fullness of God's essential being is Jesus the Son, the one who is uniquely God, who is the fullest revelation of God, so that if we see Jesus, we see God. We know God through Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn. He is the firstborn, it said in verse 16. He, or no, no, end of verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. Now that does not mean he is the one born first. That's a very important difference. It's easy to read firstborn and to determine, like some folks down the street would come knock on your door and tell you, well, see, Jesus is the first one that God made, and then everything else that we know was made through Jesus. But Jesus was the firstborn of all the things that were created. Only problem is that's not what this word firstborn means. Let me give you a couple of biblical examples. In Exodus chapter 4, in verse 22, Israel is God's firstborn. Does that mean among the nations, the very first nation that was, is Israel? Have you heard of Egypt? You see, Israel doesn't happen as a nation, as a people, until God calls Abraham and says to Abraham, I will make of you a nation. And yet Egypt and many others are already there. But God has elevated and lifted up and set high above the other nations Israel for his purpose of making himself known to the nations. That's what firstborn means. Israel is set high above all the nations of the earth, Deuteronomy 28. In Psalm 89, in verse 27, God will make David the firstborn. The highest of the kings of the earth. Is David the first one to be a king of the earth? David isn't even the first one to be king of Israel. That was Saul. Saul is full grown when David is just a shepherd boy. A little red-headed kid chasing after the sheep. David is not the one born first, but God makes David the firstborn, the prominent. Now, how does that happen that this word firstborn, which seems to, be, seems to mean born first, how does that happen that it means something else? You're wondering this, right? Let me give you an example. We have here at the church a board of elders. Now, it doesn't mean the elders are bored, but we do have a, a board of elders. A, a, a company, a business will have a board of directors. And the board sits together and they meet and they make some decisions that affect the entire organization, right? Why are they called a board? Well, because they typically sit around a table. What is the table made out of? A board. Have you ever stayed at a, at a, at a B&B and you got room and board? But none of you eat wood, I don't think. We are not beavers. But the, the board comes to stand for, whether college or an Airbnb, the board comes to stand for the food that is set on the table, which we do eat, right? And yet we still use the term board, which actually referred to the table or the board that was set on, out on a couple of stands that you could then eat off of. But the word has now moved to mean something completely different from its original origin. Now in the ancient world, who is the most important 
son in the family. Like it or not, it's the one born first. That's why all the issues with, 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 um, with Esau and Isaac, that's why all the issues with, no, not uh, Ishmael and Isaac, and Esau and Jacob, because the firstborn son is normally the prominent son. The one born first is normally the firstborn, if I could say it that way. But the one born first is not always the important one. And Jesus is said here to be the prominent one. It is a first in importance, not a first in any equal order of creation. So he is the first one, not the one born first. It means he is preeminent. He is also the firstborn out of the dead. Now there's something of order then, but he's not the first one to be resurrected. Jesus himself resurrects others, but he is the first of a whole new resurrection order. There's a prominence here so that Jesus in Romans 8.29 might be the first and preeminent among many brethren. He's the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We are those brothers and sisters. We are to be raised in him and we are to share in his resurrection future. But we will never be equal to him. That's not the point. It's not about order. It's about one who is prominent over the others. And Jesus is prominent over all creation. Jesus is the first, the highest, the one over everyone and everything. Everyone and everything answers to him. There is no one or nothing outside of his authority. There may be rebellion. It will not last. It will be brought to an end. There may be angelic beings who have usurped authorities. They will be brought down. There may be governments who have usurped God's given authority and made humans to serve themselves instead of God. In fact, it happens over and over again in human history. But they will be brought low. Just ask Pharaoh. He alone will be first. He will be preeminent. Jesus is the first. Jesus is also, in verse 16, he's the creator. By him, through him, and for him, all things are created. Those statements together are very inclusive. He's the initiator of creation, not merely a lesser agent who carries it out. Creation is done for his benefit and for his enjoyment. It is for him. It is to him. It is through him. He creates all for himself. Now, this is an interesting statement that all things are created by him, for him, through him. Let's take a look at John 1.3. There'll be folks that will knock on your door and they will say that Jesus was the first one created by God and then everything else is created, created by him. So he's less than God himself because he was the first created. And you might answer them back, but, it, but John 1.1 says in the, the word was with God and the word was God. But they've heard that so many times, they have an answer for that. They will, they will try to confuse you and go around in circles, but... Take them instead to John 1 and verse 3. Let me have you draw something on your notes. I want you to draw a square, a box. Draw a, a rectangular box. It'll look something like this. Label that box all things. We're going to do a little set subset here. Draw a box. Label the box all things. Okay? Got that? We've got all things. Now I want you to divide the box, draw a line down the middle, make you one box into two. Now in that all-inclusive, which is all things, I want you to include two categories, things made and things not made. 
If you like created, that's fine. Uh, and and what, what I love about this illustration, you can do this on the back of a napkin, the back of an envelope. You can do this anywhere. You can write this in the dust on the ground with a stick. Okay, we have things made and things not made. Things created, things not created. Things that already existed before creation. Okay, now, which of those boxes do you put, Jesus, do, do, do you put God in, first of all? Which box do you put God in? Anybody? In the, in the not made box. God is one of those things that is not made. He is the maker of everything. He is not made. He, God is not created. God is the creator of everything. Okay, so God's easy. God's in the things not made box. Now, which box do we put Jesus in? Excuse me. Which box do we put Jesus in? There's where the theological argument begins, isn't it? Well, maybe, just maybe, let's say our friends down the road, maybe they're right. Maybe God created Jesus and then Jesus created everything. That would make Jesus a created thing himself, something also made, right? So if we try to put Jesus in the things made box, how does that line up with verse 3? Now, I know I doubled the without him. Just ignore that. That's my bad. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he made himself? Unless we want to say, well, maybe the without him means except for him. Some have tried to go that route. Well, all things were made through him, and except for him was not anything made that was made. Which would have to mean that Jesus is the only thing that was made, that there was not anything else made except for Jesus. Well, what are you all doing here? You see the problem. John 1, 3 in a, in a very simple statement, makes it impossible for Jesus to be anything other than the Creator. All things were created by Him and through Him and for Him. He is the Creator of all things, creating all things by and for Himself. You are not merely made for you, you were made for Him. All other beings, both heavenly and earthly, both visible and invisible, invisible, humans and angelic or even demonic, all have their origin from him and all will answer to him. Now, compare a moment to the background baggage of the day. In Greek Stoicism, Greek philosophy spoke of all things being made in, subsisting in, and returning to nature. All the material world would return to a material thing. It was limited to that. Paul redirects to a much higher source, a much higher existence, a much higher purpose, the creator himself. Now, Jewish people there in Colossae, they believed that, that all things were made by and through and for God. No trouble with any of that. But to take their concept of Messiah, the Christ, and to lift the Christ to the one who is the creator by, for, and through are all things, that's way more than they expected. And that's the point. Not only they, but we also have our baggage, don't we? And we should expect that Jesus is more than we expect him to be. Actually, part of our problem is to some extent Jesus is more than we even want or think we need him to be. He is before all things, verse 17. Here's a time element if you want a time element. He pre-existed everything. 
He is before all things. He's before the beginning of everything. In the beginning, the Word already was. He was already present in the beginning with God. Verse 1, John 1, 1. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is preexistent, okay? Jesus is the one who is before all things, and he sustains all things. He holds together all of his creation. Somebody, somebody was suggesting to me earlier in the week that even atoms, uh, that the atoms with the electrons and the protons, they would, they would sp split apart. They would run from each other if it wasn't for the creator who holds all things together. He holds it all together. Jesus is the unifying principle. Jesus is the theory of everything. It is God's wisdom and purposes as are known to us in Christ Jesus that is what gives everything he has made meaning. We seek meaning and significance in our own ranking and sorting and organizing of the things. We try to make our own ways to how things should connect together in life in ways that will have meaning and bring us fulfillment. But the meaning and the fulfillment, the fitting of things together, the holding of things together, the coherence of the stuff in life, the coherence that it can have is only found in Christ. Philosophically, let me give you another example of that. The King of Glory. The maker of everything humbles himself to human death, even the death of a cross. The very worst humbling and rejection and repulsive shame that could be done for a, to a human being in that day. And yet in the gospel, that for us, what we deserve, the very worst possible that we would deserve is done upon him in our place in order that he might bear it for us, take our guilt and shame away, and instead give us in his honor those two things that seem incongruent. Those things, his great honor, such great shame, seem to be diametrically opposed, and yet they come together in Christ. Not only in a way, but in a beautiful way that displays and manifests the love of God and accomplishes his purpose for us. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to communicate when I say, in him all things come together. All things have their meaning and coherence. And apart from him, creation is purposeless, random. Apart from Jesus is chaos. Just as we see in the lives around us, even in our own lives to the extent where we reject God or his authority. But in Jesus is order and coherence and life and shalom. In Jesus it all comes together. Jesus is then the head of the body of the church. Verse 18 well, why wouldn't he be? Since he's the giver of and the sustainer of life, he's the ultimate authority over all. Well, this thing called the church to, to which he has given his own new life to, of, of whom he is the firstborn out of the dead and, and the first of many brothers and sisters, of course he would be the head of the church, which is for himself and his relationship with us. Jesus is the one who has reconciled us to himself, verse 20. He who made all things and causes all things to hold together, the one who gives coherence to all things, he is the one who has reconciled all things. Think of it this way. 
Only God can remake and restore and put back together what God has made. There's a hint here of it all falling apart, isn't there? There's a hint here of the great breakdown. There's a, there's a hint in the rupture of the harmony of all that God made. There was a breaking away. There was a rebellion. And now reconciliation with humanity. And bigger than humanity, a reconciliation of things in heaven as well as on the earth is needed. There's a bigger spiritual reality going on. Open our eyes, Lord, to see what Jesus is doing far greater than merely me. I find it amazing that he even knows me. I find that remarkable in all that Jesus is doing and has accomplished in the universe How is it that he could notice you and I, and yet he has? And he has reconciled all things, even us. He has reconciled back to himself, whether things on earth or in heaven. Now, how does that happen? There was this rebellion of God's sovereign shalom, God's peace and his purpose. Yet in Jesus, God's peace is again restored. He makes peace by the blood of his cross. The all in verse 20 includes the entire universe, not only humans, who are grateful in their salvation. But it also includes victory over all enemies and subjugation of all rebellion, whether rebellious humanity or in the angelic or or demonic domain. Just as Jesus himself exercised authority over every demon he met while he walked the dusty streets of Galilee or Jerusalem, so also all spiritual authorities and powers and thrones and dominions, they are all under him. And they will all be put under his authority so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's what he is accomplishing. That's what he is doing. That reconciliation is not accomplished in some far-off cosmic value, since it is so so grand and, and cosmic scope in heavens as well as the earth. The earth is just a small part of that. We would think it would be out there somewhere in a grand battle. And yet it was making peace through the blood of his cross, when the great exalted creator becomes so small as a locally known rabbi from Galilee, despised even by the important order and elite of his day. And yet look what God has done. His death, because of who he is, Now we get back to that, who Jesus is. Because of who he is, this one in whom all the fullness of God dwells dies a death big enough, full enough, in humanity for all of humanity, satisfying God's righteous and just demand against all humans who have rebelled against him, joined in this angelic or demonic rebellion. And this reconciliation is applied to all who believe, to all who will receive it. What difference does who Jesus is make? The text described who Jesus is. It doesn't give us a whole lot of application as to why. It is important to know. It is important that we have our theology right about Jesus. It will impact 
who, how we live, but it also impacts who has life. There are people running around saying, I believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus too. And I learned years ago to ask them, which Jesus? Because they believe in a lesser Jesus who is not God himself, but one who is less than the one almighty God. And because their Jesus is less, you will have to do more. Because their Jesus is less, you will have to try harder. A lesser Jesus who is less than fully God, his death alone is not quite enough to reconcile you back to right relationship with God. It will have to depend on something you do as well. Jesus plus your works because a lesser Jesus will not be enough. It is because of who Jesus is that his death is sufficient for us. That is what's at stake theologically. But what how does that relate then to our life in walking with him? There's one purpose statement tucked away in this description, this song, perhaps an early song of worship in the early church. If I knew the tune, we could sing it. We don't know the tune. But tucked away in the midst of the song, roundabout in verse 18, is the purpose. So that in everything... He might be preeminent. There's the title. Jesus over everything, not only in the first century, but in this century. That Jesus would be preeminent, not only in Greek and Jewish lives, but in our lives. Over all the other things that we would look to and rely on instead. Somebody asked me, are you picking on peace health? Why is there a peace health emblem at the bottom of that banner? Well, there's a, there's a library of a university. We're not picking on a particular university. There's a, a, a capital building. We're not picking on particular politicians or parties. But these are all the things that would either claim sufficiency they would be the things that we could put our trust in and often would call us to put our trust in, and we often and easily do. And yet they will never be enough, then or now. Jesus is over everything. The purpose of who Jesus is and the purpose of his reconciliation of all things is so that in all things he would be preeminent. Jesus comes first in all of the universe. And Jesus comes first in my little tiny corner of it. It's because of who he is. Who Jesus is and why I would submit any or every corner of my life and heart to him is because he's preeminent. Who Jesus is matters greatly to me. And as I yield to the one who is preeminent, there is where I will begin to taste of his shalom, his blessing that he alone can bring. Forget trying to measure up to your own little standards. I can't trust in my own obedience. I need his empowering and his strengthening, verse 11 of this chapter. We tend to live for short-term gratification, fulfilling short-term mortal-minded goals. But Jesus calls us to live for his resurrection life and kingdom. He who is preeminent over my life and my body 
and what I do with it and the words that I say and my attitudes and, and in my marriage and in my family life and my workplace relationships in all of that. It's going to be unpacked for us as we continue through the book of Colossians. Part of the trouble with, with starting in the beginning of the book and working through slowly so that we can soak in the truth along the way is first he lays out the, the, the theological truth, who Jesus is. Later he's going to begin to peel back for us what that means and the implications of it. But let's peek ahead, shall we? Spoiler alert, but let's peek ahead to what's coming. Jesus is going to call us to sacrifice for what the church, his body, needs. Who does Jesus think he is asking sacrifice of me? Well, he is the fullness of God in humanity. Who was himself willing to do for the church what his church needed to die in our place? So the sacrifice he calls me to then, he has every right to. And he also knows better than I do the glory it will bring just as his did. Who does Jesus think he is telling us in Colossians 2 to stop passing judgment on other members of the body as not useful to God because of what they do or don't do, of disqualifying somebody on this basis or that basis? And he says, stop passing judgment. Let no one disqualify you. Who is Jesus to say that? Well, he's the head of the body. It's his church. He's the firstborn from the dead who leads us in a whole new resurrection life, not merely an outwardly conformed life by our best efforts and discipline. Who does Jesus think he is calling my own personal behavior choices sexual immorality? That's personal. That's private. Why is that his business? Because Jesus is my sustainer. Jesus is your sustainer. Jesus is the one who gives meaning to any fulfillment. Any attempt to find fulfillment or satisfaction apart from him will be futile. Ask Solomon. Read Ecclesiastes. But faith in Jesus, it's a Sunday thing, right? It's a church thing. What does that really have to do with how I relax in front of my TV later this afternoon or evening? What does Jesus have to do with how I relate or don't relate to my family? Or what I do or don't do at work, dipping into chapter 3. Jesus was first. He always was. So Jesus for us must come first. You were created by and for him in order to be with him. You were not created by yourself for yourself. It is only because we don't realize this that we look for fulfillment in other ways. I think this will satisfy, but it can't. Who Jesus is defines how I view and understand my circumstances in life. How things are right now and why are they this way? I'm going to leave my office, move over to the cafe, and the coffee machine is going to, or, or the copy machine, clicky, 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 is going to be right outside my door. Why has all this got to happen in my miserable life? What a stupid way to look at things. Here's Paul in Philippians 1. Prison is simply another place for Paul to tell his glory to those in bondage from sin whom Christ, the preeminent one, can free. Paul is not locked in. No, rather the sovereign God has inserted Paul behind the bars. And there, 
Those who thought they're guarding him, they're the ones who are a captive audience, chained for a whole shift to the premier witness to the gospel of the risen Jesus. Look what God is doing in the midst of even the troubles of life around about us. We remain quiet because our tame view of who Jesus is and what Jesus does in life doesn't quite reach to the real problems that are out there. And so we just pretend to ignore them. But Jesus is preeminent. And there is then nothing outside his portfolio. Nothing that he can't redeem. Nothing that may occur that he will not use to his greater and grander purpose somehow. Who Jesus is changes how we pray. Because every situation, every spiritual power, every opposition that we will face in ourselves and in our flesh and external to us, even the enemy himself, all answer to him. So let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we would indeed see Jesus as he truly is, rather than whom we merely think him to be, how we imagine him in ways that make sense to us. Lord, we too easily compartmentalize, not even being aware of. And it's not merely a great claim of preeminent sovereign authority over us. It is the promise of the one who is all-sufficient for us and the only one who can satisfy. Indeed, we not only want to know him, we need to know him more and more. Father, in this text, by your Spirit, open our eyes that we, like those who came to the disciples in John chapter 12 with a very simple prayer, they said, we would see Jesus. Oh God, more and more. Would that be your answer for us? And perhaps more importantly, Father, would that be our prayer to you that we would want to see more of Jesus, to know him more, that that would change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.